0: and welcome to the art guide australia podcast with Tiani Mikas. In our conversation series, we delve a little deeper to hear directly from artists, and for this episode, I spoke with Faye and With a practice that spans writing, publishing, sound, performance, and touch-based works, Faye is interested in how we encounter, describe, and create art. In particular, we talk about what it means to engage with art without relying on sight and how museums can be custodians of stories rather than artworks. Your practice spans so many different forms and disciplines, so I wonder, was there a particular discipline that you started from or something that established the basis for everything that was to come?
1: Ever since I was little, I've always had some kind of an art practice alongside whatever I was doing. And that ranged through writing, illustrating, painting, um, printmaking, you know, all sorts of different media. And then um, when I was working previously in environmental work and then in peace building internationally, um, I started to use art making as a way to process the kinds of things that I was working with that I couldn't deal with through policy papers and academic papers and things. And I gradually got to this point of feeling really frustrated with um, that world and realising that it was um, a more liberating intellectual experience for me to be um, making art about whatever I was interested in at that time. So that's uh, when I decided to be brave enough to stop uh, what I was doing and to, um, to go back to art school. And I actually started off my first couple of months was in sculpture and spatial practice, but then I shifted, um, this is at the VCA, up to painting. And um, and I graduated in painting, even though my final installation actually dealt with um, kind of an architectural installation of paintings that included um, text works and a book. So it was already pretty multifaceted at that point.
0: I feel that your practice and the way it's based so much in collaboration across many forms hints towards a kind of indeterminacy of art, as in where does the work of art lie or how do we encounter, meet or enter a work of art? Is that fair to say about your work? I
1: think that that would be fair to say about not just my art practice but um, my way of thinking about the world in general. And maybe a way of understanding that is to say that... um, when uh I was first at university, I did a um a degree in physics and did my honours in um a strand of nuclear physics and that was because I was really interested in understanding how I could approach the world um and within that, actually you deal a lot with um uncertainty indeterminacy. You deal a lot with the vagaries of kind of individual subjective understanding. And then when I moved into peace building, it was a lot about trying to understand how the world operates. And so I think when I came to art practice, I had a way of working, which involved sort of a, a curiosity and, and a, um, a questioning approach, but also an interest in conversation with others who might have a different approach to me. And a real interest in not um, sticking to rigid boundaries, but enabling base of art to allow me to enter into, you know, different encounters in making work, um, in uh, understanding other people's work or experiencing it.
0: Can we talk about your publishing and writing practice and the platform you started, 3Ply? What do you see as being the critical link between the acts of publishing and writing and contemporary art?
1: I think my answer to this relates to a question you asked previously about indeterminacy Uh, because I don't really see all these things as separate. So maybe a way to explain that is to say when I was um, spending a lot more time making paintings, I saw those as an act of writing, an act of drafting a painting. And I would also write stories alongside that I thought had this intimate relationship through the editing process to the painting. So when it comes to notions of publishing, I think that that is very much about deciding that you want to um, bring an artwork or a conversation to a public audience, because of course the route of, you know, to publish is really just to make public. And so it's just another space to operate in, which is different from operating in the kind of conventional gallery system. And obviously the publishing can exist in that space, but it's, it's another liberating vehicle because it enables me to work in libraries and bookstores and archives and reading groups. Um, so it's really a case of allowing other strands to come out. And the other thing about writing and publishing is that it also opens up the audiences to artworks because there are a number of people that I encounter who I am interested in, talking with and experiencing work with um, who feel um, closed off or shut out from the conventional gallery system and uncomfortable in that space. So uh, writing and publishing is a way of activating conversations with people beyond the kind of intimate art audience.
0: In recent years, blindness has played a key role in your practice and it's now a departure point for your work. How did this first come about?
1: I've always had low vision ever since I was really tiny, you know, before I even started school, but it never um, entered consciously into the way that I approached uh, life, approached art making and so on. It certainly did subconsciously because, in fact, my father was an inventor of reading and writing devices for the blind. So I was surrounded by role models who happened to be blind. But certainly, consciously, that wasn't any part of my identity. And then a few years ago, I came to a tipping point where I realized that I was going to need to change a lot of things about... uh, the way that I was um, approaching art making, the kinds of fine engraving that i 'd been doing um, on the paintings on stainless steel uh, was not something that I could safely do, and I started to really question what my practice was going to be. I went through a period of of being afraid that that meant giving up painting, giving up publishing, and what was you know what was the space I was going to operate in and the answer kind of came out of that, which is that actually the notion of uh, thinking about Having a perceptual approach to the world, which is different from an ocular standard of 2020, brings up fascinating questions in relation to artworks um, and even in relation to kind of like bigger questions about communication and translation. So, I started um, in a very small way uh, making tactile paintings and thinking about could I have a painting practice that was not explicitly visual, that also entertained other parts of um, tactility. And I realised as a painter that actually when I was making paintings before, that kind of really myopic, extreme myopic observation um, that is associated with low vision and a textural quality is something that many painters are familiar with in working with works. But once they go and are hung on a wall, then there's that expectation that people will stand back from them. So that allowed me to realise that blindness offered a potential to generate new methods of practice, even in areas where you wouldn't think that would be associated with um, you know, work that's oriented through blindness. Something you
0: mention is this idea of blundering, which is where you encounter or make art from a position of uncertainty. What have you found so fruitful and necessary about this position?
1: I really came across the idea of blundering almost by accident. I was thinking about the etymological w- roots of another word, beholding, and I was finding ways of appropriating that as a, a method of close attentiveness when you're handling objects. And, um, and I was thinking about counterpoints for this close attention. And I was also reading a lot of blind authors, particularly uh, people like Jacques Lusserrand, Um, the blind French resistance um, agent. And he talks a lot about navigating in a sphere of unknown. And I realized that to blunder is normally considered, you know, like a stumbling, that's something bad. But that there was a way that I could retrieve the agency of blindness by exploring this blundering into the unknown. And I also, from my past work in kind of environmental studies, realized that it was actually a way of... um, dealing with uncertainty and precariousness. And so it allowed me a position to come from um, kind of critically and politically, which came from blindness, but is actually really useful in this world that is um, constantly changing and where there are more unknowns, you know, in any kind of level, micro or macro of practice than there are knowns. And so I've realized that blundering allows me a way of um, writing really fruitfully. Um, it allows me to get out of writing blocks because I can just head off into paths and, you know, they might trail out, but that's okay because eventually I'll find my way through a narrative. I've found that blundering is useful and thinking about a gallery situation, especially because sometimes or, or always actually the bright lights in galleries really disorient me. And so blundering around a space is also a way of can be of navigating the space, of mapping it out and of listening to I don't know, its acoustic properties or how artworks relate to one another.
0: You've talked in the past about this idea of resisting the visual. So what does it mean to resist the visual? And if you do resist it, is there something else you welcome instead?
1: I think in the way that the art-making world is set up and really the way that the cultural world is set up is that it's highly oculocentric. And I've also been part of that world. And so it's natural for me to approach things still through that kind of 2020 visual lens, even though that's not something that I now experience. And what i found is that the more that I'm able to cultivate an ability to resist the visual, the more that allows other perceptual uh, possibilities. So, for example, I have been uh, studying to learn echolocation and last year I led a group through... Uh, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, in which I led a series of meditations based on echolocation um, in order to encounter a sound work by Bill Fontana. So there's um, there's a different perceptual attention that comes about if you can find ways to resist the visual.
0: When I was thinking about your work, I thought of Duchamp and his non-retinal art, which has so dominated the way we engage with art. And it must be interesting to you, because despite the focus on all of the non-retinal aspects of art, this understanding still ultimately relies on a foremost visual engagement.
1: Yeah, I think that that is a really uh, a perceptive point that you've made, and it's something that I come across increasingly the more that I move to an extreme variation of relationship to sight versus the normative standard. Um, And it's also something that I realize more and more as I seek out collaborations with people who also have different relationships to blindness. I think that the art making system even though there's been this vast philosophical critique and artistic interventions over time in relationship to non-retinal art um, is still so structurally embedded in a um, a visual point of view that it's very difficult for people to step outside of that and that's where I have... um, Uh, these opportunities and possibilities because it becomes impossible for me to relate to the world in that way and therefore it becomes more obvious where works that are coming from a non-retinal position actually um, are intended for a 2020 cultural audience. One of the projects that I'm working on at the moment, which is really exciting, is a collaboration with American artist Jen Bourbon and um, she invited me to join her Residency project with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's where we're imagining kind of ways of thinking and communicating with beings that are completely different from the normative human. And I think one of the things that I can bring to that is that it's an easier position for me to come from because um, the visual is not a way that I predominantly uh, relate to the world.
0: That reminds me of one work you did with Georgina Klieg that invited people to touch as part of the work and you found people with a visual impairment engaged more so than other people and later you wrote that rather than dispelling tactile apprehension, your approach perversely devolved into spectatorship of the blind. How do you grapple with this and how do you prompt people to enter unfamiliar encounters with artworks?
1: Yeah, that was an important moment for me because it was accepting that it's not enough just to make work um, that invites touch without some kinds of ways of ushering audiences into this different form of behaviour, which I'm not just allowing but encouraging and wanting in a gallery space. Um, And it's led to a few different things. I mean, this is a problem that many people have noticed who try and make work that's intended to engage with touch. Smithson to the to the European painters who engage with kind of, um, you know, fabric and, and movement of the body in relation to painting through to many of my collaborators. So it's not an unusual situation. It's a very common one. And I think one of the things that is interesting to do is also to think of scores for audiences, That um, also help to um, guide but not be didactic about how they are invited to encounter a gallery space. So, an example of this would be um, a work that I did with Shelley Lassica and Brian Phillips at the Ian Potter uh, last year, where as part of it, um, we had a score for ascending a staircase that involved, you know, stepping, tilting, listening. And it was laid out in a kind of poetic form so that it wasn't, um, you know, somebody saying this is what you must do, but it allowed an invitation that I think you need to make if you want people not to act the way that they've been indoctrinated to act in a gallery.
0: Talking about that idea of invitation, at one point you created works on paper called Touchable Paintings and people actually refused to touch these or were embarrassed to, What is it about the sense of touch that makes us think it's permissible in private, but too embarrassing or too intimate in public?
1: I think that actually can be traced back to the early 1800s when they were introducing codes of behaviour in museums, in schools and in other um, places where there was an explicit effort to control the dirty masses and to control the natives. Um, you know, They wanted to have people up off the floor, they wanted them in chairs, in a gallery you were told to stand back, um, to learn taste, sully the work. And that was a major shift because before then the galleries were just for the nobles and they could go around handling and fondling and licking and biting whatever work they wanted. In And sometimes they were asked to be given a work to take home. So there was this major shift when they opened up the gallery to the public, and I had um, a fascinating day in London, uh, I think it was last year, um, looking at the archives in the British Library uh, from the select committee museums around the time where they were talking about opening up the gallery uh, to the commoners and what that would mean in terms of touch of the paintings. One of the other things is that it's, um, it actually isn't also historically, but you know, privately behind the scenes, curator's touch works all the time, um, Conservatives touch works. Uh, it happens, but it's just, it's so transgressive that people, uh, there's like a conspiracy to act as if it doesn't happen.
0: You very recently undertaken a summer residency at Blindside with artist Katie West. I understand that the two of you are interested in embodied readings and archives. What did you learn or discover throughout your residency?
1: Well, The Museum Incognito is a project that um, Katie and I formally launched last year, but we've been working towards for over a year now since we realised that we had this interest in decolonising museum spaces and exhibition practices. Um, Her coming from her identity as a Yinjibandji woman and me coming from blindness. And so the summer Residency has actually been an opportunity for us to reflect on... The projects that we've had so far, which has included things like um, archiving an ephemeral performance by Cecilia Vicuña, Chilean poet-artist, who did a Keening to the Frog performance on the banks of the dam that is in Muckleford, uh, in the property where I live. And we presented that work in San Francisco, but it's never been shown here in Australia. So it was an opportunity to try and um, um, exhibit that here. And it's also bringing it back to country in a way. So we also had an opportunity to reflect back on our experience in Belgrade last year and on the the kinds of texts that we came out with on our approach to walking the landscape. Um, And the third thing that we've done is a new project which is that we went um, up to Bort Lake, uh, which is also Jajawurong country. There we went on a tour of uh, sites around the lake, which includes um, an incredible number of scar trees, ovens that were used over thousands of years. There's important burial sites there. There's also the burial site. Um, for the um, body parts that were returned from Melbourne Museum and the University of Melbourne and other such places um, to country. We investigated those kinds of uh, neglected histories and concealed histories um, around Bort, and we're bringing that back into the gallery for our exhibition. Um, So it's really been a chance for us to indulge in conversation about how you can archive ephemeral practices, how you can archive through bodies, through movement, through dance, um, through walking landscape, um, and to try and have an alternative to the, kind of the notion of the museum as the collection of objects rather than a museum that's a carrier of stories and a custodian for those stories.
0: And does this connect with another work you have coming up called Museum Incognita Beachworth, which is taking place at HM Prison in Beachworth?
1: Well, part of our summer residency was conversations around that, although that's not going to be part of the exhibition tonight. Um, One of the things that I did was uh, go on a research trip for an exhibition um, that's taking place next month, and I was trying to think, what is my relationship to this prison? And I found out about um, a man in Beechworth called Blind Tommy, who lived there uh, for many years until he was in his 90s and he walked around ca- town apparently with a, with a cane that he fashioned himself and he sold uh, cabbages um, to the community. And I kept thinking about him and about the stories of the people who've passed through Beechworth that are stories that are not part of the dominant narrative which is usually associated with the Ned Kelly gang and a lot of white Australia and one of the things about Blind Tommy is that there's a, a place in um the archives of the State Library where he's referred to as the last Chinaman of Beechworth. And so as somebody also of um Chinese heritage who also now lives in the gold fields, it just struck me this is strange this kind of um siloing off of the Chinese as from a time before rather than acknowledging kind of current you know, migration or stories. Um also there were a lot of Chinese inmates at that prison who were treated um, quite harshly, and so I was interested in those stories. So I went there, you know, and thinking about this um, this cabbage. But while I was there, I found out that there were other stories and histories that revolve around the cabbage. So um, there used to be a market garden the prisoners grew uh, vegetables in, including these cabbages, because their diet was so poor. And then they would sell those out to the community to try and um, improve the kinds of food that they were eating. So um, the more that Katie and I talked, we were seeing the cabbage as a way of both um, researching history, um, reactivating it, but also not just those historical stories, but thinking about how um, the relationships between plants, people and place can nurture one another.
0: At the moment, your collaboration with musician and sound artist Brian Phillips has been included in the regional touring show scene Voices. It's an audio essay of sorts. Can you explain the piece that you've created?
1: So our idea there was that um, we would create an audio description by encountering the works ourselves. So Brian and I travelled to Horsham, which is the first incarnation of this exhibition, which is going to travel around Australia. And we spent time um, outside the gallery kind of sensing what is the place like and recording our thoughts. We spent time walking through the show um, and one of the things I was interested in was an idea of myopic observation. So that really extreme, extreme close looking. What does that um, give a reading of the artworks? We engaged in conversation about our differing reactions and we had some quite strong political reactions within the space, um, which is going to be included within this audio essay. And then the other thing that we did is that we invited um, people who um, have blindness or low vision from the community around Horsham, and some people travelled for quite a long way actually, um, to join with us in the afternoon, and we guided um, a walkthrough and an encounter with the artworks with them, and some of their reflections and comments are also going to be included in this audio essay. Um, and I'm excited about it for a few different reasons. One is that the installation of the works is obviously going to change as this moves from regional gallery to regional gallery, and so we're describing one um, kind of choreography of the exhibition which is actually going to be different in those other spaces. So the way the audio essay has been created, it's um, suggesting to people a way to walk through an exhibition that's going to be totally different. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is this, playing with this idea of really myopic close readings. Um, and the third thing um, is asking people with blindness to actually describe works rather than always being you know, shunted to the side and having a sighted person translate them. To
0: me, that really gets to something in your work, which is this interest in the translation of knowledge and experiences and what ideas and descriptions we value and how they're interpreted and passed on. Was this in your mind when you were working with Brian?
1: Well, actually, one of the first ways I started thinking about how I could transfigure audio description as a creative medium was via translation. Um, And then the more that I got into translation theories and Diderot's theories of translation, Um, I started to think about vibration and I realized that this is a way of describing works which allows for um, the verbal, it actually also allows for physical vibrations, um, the audio vibrations and it's something that I'm going to be carrying into my next phase of work because I'm actually exploring vibration as a mode of performance, as a way of thinking about how we remember and recall our encounters with artworks. Um, And as part of this, I'm going to be working with a series of collaborators, some of whom I've worked with for a while, um, like Brian Phillips um, and Shelley Lassica, but others who are completely new to me, um, including Anna Seymour, who's a deaf dancer, um, and we'll be exploring some uh, really fascinating stories that come from uh, cave paintings and um, the language in cave paintings that may have been an early form of sign language and which was also tactile. So translation and vibration is something that I can see deepening and extending um, as I go forward.
0: I think most artists after a period of time have a thread that weaves sometimes quite imperceptibly through their work. When you look back at your publishing and writing practice and your painting, performance, sound and tactile-based works, what threads do you think you've been continuously following?
1: Well, Actually, I think I've been following the same thread since I was very small because I can remember being young and lying on the floor of my bedroom and um, writing these poems about the world and um, encounters in a garden um, and illustrating them in different ways. And I think from that point on and kind of crystallizing within my art practice has been this um, interest in curiosity about um, how we encounter the world, about how we understand it, about how we talk about it, about how we remember it. Um, that can be thought about through text, through um, recollection, through making, and not kind of segregated silos of activity.
0: And that was artist Faye Indivi discussing her practice and her most recent exhibitions. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and remember to keep in touch with Guide online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and previews from around Australia.